So we're in the fourth week of our Unshakable Message series. Today I want to talk with you about a topic that can be very painful for a lot of people. Um, I want to talk with you about facing death with faith. Facing death with faith. And, and, and just to kind of narrow our focus a little bit, I'm not going to be speaking with you so much about facing your own death, although much of what we're going to say has implications for that. I, I want to talk to those of you that just recently have, or maybe in the not too distant past, so much that the pain is still present, or, or maybe right now you're facing like real concern about somebody you love and maybe them not being with you here on this earth much longer. Uh, this is a big deal. This is a really, really, really big deal. When I was in ministry in Florida for a number of years before moving to Ohio, uh, and no joking, it's going to sound like a setup for a joke, but there are just a lot of older people in Florida. I mean, you, you know this, right? And so our church, being a bedroom community of Tampa, uh, we had a lot of older people. And so in other words, there were just a lot of funerals that we did. And there was always a discussion about death and dying. And there, there was just a part of the life of the church that we did. And I got a front row seat to watch people work through emotionally losing somebody they loved. And the fear that goes along with that, just the raw pain, emotional loss. And if there was ever any dysfunction in the family at all at this particular time in their life, it really tended to heighten that dysfunction as opposed to, to lessen the dysfunction just a really, really difficult subject to talk about. And what we're going to do for the next 30 minutes or so is we're going to do what we do around here a lot, okay? We're just going to take an ug- what is potentially an ugly, emotionally draining subject and just put it right on the table. Everybody look at it. And we're just going to talk about it through the lenses of God's word. And before we do that, I want to ask you a question. I've got a quote on the screen, all right? So guys, throw up my quote. Here it is. I'm not afraid to die. I just want to, don't want to be there when it happens. I want to ask you a question. Who said this? In your own mind, was it Shakespeare? George Carlin, Woody Allen, or Abraham Lincoln? Get that in your mind. Let me take one of them off the table. George Carlin did not say this. Here's what he said about death. Death is caused by swallowing small amounts of saliva over long periods of time. That's what George Carlin said. He said, that's how I could die. Who do you think this was? Well, yeah, it's exactly right. It's, it's definitely, it's, it's Woody Allen, right? Uh, um, <clears throat> you know, on the internet, if you want to make something sound important, you always just put it in Abraham Lincoln's mouth, right? Um, so, He says, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. I'm just trying to introduce a little bit of levity here in the middle of what can be a challenging subject. And it should not surprise you that matters of faith and belief come to play in dramatic ways around the subject of death and dying. And as a church, we care. We care deeply about where people are. And there's a a lot of Bible and just a lot of wisdom that comes from our life of faith with Christ that speaks specifically to this issue. And when we get to the end of our time today and we're taking our next steps, those of you that are a part of our church regularly, you know that's where we're headed. Those of you that are guests, that was explained to you and you'll kind of see how that unfolds. I'm actually going to layer on just another experience for us. I want to tell you about it right now so that if you want to make yourself available to this, you can go ahead and get your mind around it. And we're going to take our next steps together and I'm going to spend a little extra time in prayer today for those of us that are struggling and facing this reality that just goes along with living in a fallen world. And then during our worship time at the end of the message, there are going to be a handful of folks standing at the back of our auditorium between the two double doors, so between the exit signs in the back, right over here on this, this side, and they're going to be available to pray with you. So during our final worship songs, uh, today, if you want, while that's going, we're not going to make a big deal about it. I'm going to say amen. Will and the band will be up here. If you want to get up out of your seat and just go receive prayer 
in a very gentle way, there'll be a handful of people that I trust and have talked to about this and that kind of do anything weird. They're going to just ask you your name. They're going to introduce themselves, find out what's going on in your life. And then together, they're going to hold your hand or put their hand on your shoulder. And they're going to ask God to bring his peace and his presence to bear on what you're facing. And so if you have a loved one, if there's an illness that you're facing, if you're concerned about a close friend, you can go and just stand there and receive some prayer Um, This is just a very biblical practice. We don't do it a whole lot here in the church in a very public way like this, but it's a biblical practice. We're in the Bible. God says that if there's anybody that's sick or hurting among you, that they should call for wise and seasoned believers or elders, if you will, from the congregation, and those folks should pray for them. And uh, that's what we're going to do today. So with that said, I want to take you to a couple places in your Bible where we're going to talk you have your scriptures with you today, you can either turn there or many of you, you turn on your scriptures, right? With your electronic device, turn on your scriptures to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That'll be one that we use. And as you're going there, you may also want to get to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So go ahead and get to those places and let me take you through just a quick snapshot in Jesus' life. One day Jesus got word that uh, somebody he cared very much about, a gentleman by the name of Lazarus, had passed away. And Jesus cared a lot about this family. Uh, Lazarus was related to Mary and Martha. They were all of them a part of the entourage that financially supported Jesus. They did that. They emotionally supported Jesus. They had bought into the message of salvation offered through Jesus. They were close. They were part of the inner circle. And Jesus got word that Lazarus had, had passed away. And so he makes his way after he had to deal with some other stuff to the place um, where, where, where Lazarus is. And when he gets there, the morning is in full force. And um, we get the shortest verse in our Bible, two words long, is given to us at this moment in Jesus' life. It's the Bible verse, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And theologians have made much about that two-word verse. What does it mean? Like, like, what are the implications? They've spiritualized it. They've talked about the humanity of Jesus. For me, when I read that story in our gospels about Jesus weeping at the death of his friend, I can relate to that. I've lived long enough myself to lost people dear and near to me. And just the pain and sense of lost grief that comes upon us. Jesus was in many ways, very human. In fact, the Bible describes him as 100% human and 100% God at the same time. I know the math doesn't work, but he felt very human. He experienced very human emotions. And in Jesus weeping, let me give you something cool about this theologically. We're given permission simply by his example. We're given permission to feel the full pain that we experience when somebody close to us is near death, dies, We're given permission to do that. There's nothing faith-filled about pretending that death doesn't touch us. There's nothing faithful about acting like the pain isn't real. Jesus himself experienced the full onslaught of that emotion. When the first century Christians were living life with Jesus and then he dies on the cross, is resurrected from the tomb and goes back to heaven... In their minds, he was coming back very quickly. We know this just from reading the Bible. The problem was, is in their life, Jesus delayed. And as he delayed, people close to them began to suffer. They had illnesses. Many of them were killed for their faith. Some of them died natural causes. And as time went on, we get more and more language in our Bible about what do you do with death? 
How do you think about it? How do you process it? How do you experience it? How does faith impact it? And somebody close to you is facing that. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the apostle Paul writes to this church at Thessalonica who had this question front and center on their minds. It's been a while. Jesus hasn't come back. Some of us that are in, we're on board. Some of us are sick and dying, Paul. So he writes to them a letter and he gives, here's one snapshot of the words he gives them. He says these words. And now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know what will happen to the person who has died so that you will not be full of sorrow like people who have no hope. One verse. And now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know what will happen to the person who has died so that you will not be full of sorrow like people who have no hope. Now that phrase, full of sorrow, is a powerful phrase. It's an adequate phrase. But there's another way of thinking about this phrase that I think maybe sheds a little more light on exactly what Paul's trying to communicate here. The the phrase full of sorrow kind of equals the idea of inordinate sorrow. And so now you can see why the translators from Greek into English in our Bible use the phrase full of sorrow because the word inordinate, the phrase inordinate sorrow doesn't communicate much more. But the idea here is, is this overwhelming sense of sorrow, an incapacitating sorrow that doesn't go away in a day or two or a week or two, but it lingers on and on and on and it, it arrests life. It stops you in your tracks. Paul says, In this one sentence, we can extrapolate without going very far, without knowing a lot of Greek or a lot of systematic theology, that there is a sorrow that comes when people pass. But for those of us who have faith, it's not the kind of sorrow that is inordinate, where our life is fully consumed by the sorrow and it never lessens. He says that kind of sorrow would be sorrow like this. It would be a sorrow where there was never a hope of any other reality bearing upon the issue. The only reality would be the sense of loss and disconnect and pain. That would be an inordinate sorrow. But instead, because of our faith, because Jesus is really present, because we can have an unshakable faith in the middle of these very difficult times, we can sorrow, it's real, but it's sorrow with hope. It's sorrow with hope. You and I can have unshakable faith in the middle of dealing with very difficult things like serious illness that may lead to death, the loss of somebody we love who's been a big part of our lives, like in a positive way, the loss of somebody that we love that there was just all kinds of dysfunction around and the loss somehow makes the dysfunction speak even louder in our lives. We can have unshakable faith in the middle of those kinds of things when people we work next to just get that bad news call from the doctor and we love them and we're concerned about them and we watch their lives change dramatically overnight because we can sorrow, but we can sorrow with hope. Somewhere in the middle of the darkness, there literally is a candle shining, a candle of hope. This is the picture of facing death with faith that God provides for us in the pages of scripture. A lot of darkness, yes, but a candle of hope in the middle of it. Not inordinate sorrow, but sorrow with hope. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes these words. Again, kind of dealing with the reality, he says, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that we'll have a home in heaven. 
an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. Paul is again trying to unpack the implications of what happens when the when, when the truth that life for all of us ends in death really begins to impact us. Paul says, here's the, here's the reality that we have to just hold on to. It's the thing that breathes hope. It's the thing that lights the candle. It's this. It's that as long as we live on this earth, we're in this tent-like body. But this earth isn't our home, Paul says. Heaven's our home. And when this earthly tent is taken down, what we have is a new reality with God in heaven. These are the biblical sources of hope in the middle of what can be a very sorrowful time. For me in ministry, the toughest stuff I do is dealing with funerals. I'm thrilled, sounds odd, but I'm thrilled to do it. I know how necessary and important it is. But it's painful to watch people you care about suffer and deal with a life that they can't even imagine what it's going to be look like look like tomorrow, let alone a year from now. So let me ask you a question. When was the first time that that death became a reality for you? Do you remember that? Like were you a kid? Somebody close to you passed away? Was it later in life? I had heard about death a lot as a kid, but it was when my grandmother passed away when I was in my middle teen years that the the first time that the grip of death, the reality of death hit me. Just a few months after that, a high school um, friend of mine in in my homeroom, so we had, you know, lockers near each other. We had classes together. He's a good, funny guy, made me laugh. In the middle of a party, he had gotten uh, drunk and um, made a couple stupid decisions. And, and I, I grew up near Chattanooga and there, there are like rock face cliffs and stuff. And he was at a party. This guy walks right off the edge of a cliff, accidentally walks right at the middle of a party, boom, and he died. That was my senior year. It got to me. Maybe it was the proximity of those two events got to me in a big way. And and the reality of death became very, very real to me. It's at this time as well that I'm really coming to terms with what it means for me to be a person who has a relationship with Jesus apart from the relationship my parents have. I was going through that phase of making the faith that is offered my faith. And this dialogue with death and loss and pain is a big part of that. I want to make something perfectly clear to you. That the promises that Jesus gave us, that he would never leave us or forsake us, that has become for us all through this message series, the bedrock, that the presence of Christ is real, that it's available. It's just as real and available when we're going through the sense of pain and loss that comes because of the death of a loved one. It's just as real then, even though often emotionally that reality is covered over by our sense of loss and pain, fear, sometimes regret. So how do, we, how do we face it then? I want to give you just four suggestions. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm not trying to like, convince you. This is not the kind of discussion that an argument alone turns the tide and gets rid of the fear and the doubt. And, but here's four realities, four actions that I think we can lean in with whenever we're facing the death of somebody we love. I think number one, we can turn immediately to God. 
turn immediately to God. Sometimes well-meaning Christians will make comments about folks who have put off a decision about Jesus. They put off a life of faith. They put off uh, engaging Christianity until moments of loss, like the death of a loved one or maybe their own illness. And then at that moment, they're highly receptive and they move towards faith in Christ. And sometimes well-meaning Christians will comment about that. Well, isn't it a shame that they waited till then? And I, I get it. I get it. It makes sense. But on the other hand, this is a great time. I can't think of a better time to turn to faith in God. And God specifically wants to be a part of all of our lives, but very clearly wants to be a part of our lives as we think about death and loss and eternity and what's next. So one thing we can do when we're facing the loss of a loved one is we can turn immediately to God and God actually welcomes that. We don't have to turn to him in shame We're not turning to him with a sense of of embarrassment because we put it off. We're doing exactly what he wants us to do. So James chapter four, verse eight gives us these words. It's a general promise, but it applies to this time in our lives. James four, eight says, draw close to God and God will draw close to you. The context of the book of James is simply that James is giving us practical wisdom for life. It's like the wisdom book in the New Testament. You want to know about how life works? So James talks about guarding your tongue. He talks about the problems of anger and just how we should treat people. And then he says, kind of in an overarching terms, draw close to God, because when you do that, what you're going to discover is God will draw close to you. It's a general promise, but it applies right here. One of the heroes of the faith for me, one of the dead theologians I like to read is a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a, a, a pastor in, um, in London, and he got very, very famous. In fact, I think we have a couple pictures of this guy. Guys, if you don't mind, show up a picture. This is Charles Spurgeon. And uh, in, in, the, uh, in the 1800s, he's doing his ministry there at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. I like this picture because it's the only one I can find of him smiling. You see that? In fact, he talked a lot about the fact that Christians are too sad. And so he'd make jokes in his sermons and he was criticized all the time because people would laugh. But thousands of people would flock to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. And he preached a hard gospel, turning away from sin and turning towards Jesus. But he was full of life and people loved that about him. And so they couldn't keep him away. And so he was the, the most famous preacher of his day. People would travel across the Atlantic from the United States to go see him. And one day, Charles Spurgeon was preaching to 10,000 people without a microphone, 10,000 people in a room that was not built for 10,000. And somebody yelled fire. In fact, here's a picture. Did you show them this? Here's a picture of what that was like. Somebody yelled fire. And just from looking at that room, you can see it ain't going to go well. 50 people were injured, 17 lost their lives. And here was Charles Spurgeon dealing with the reality that he had done and was doing all that God had called him to do, being faithful to the gospel. And in the middle of it, he had to deal with the reality of death and sunk him into a depression. In his journals, he indicates that he never fully recovered from it. But there are a couple statements he made 
as he's processing this pain, this reality, doing it with God, he keeps the conversation going. We talked about that last week. In the middle of our pain, we keep the conversation with God going. He says, he says this, this phrase, that God is too wise to be mistaken and God is too good to be unkind. That somehow in the middle of dealing with faith in the face of death, he comes to the conclusion that God really is good, that he's kind. And friends, I'm telling you, this is one of the things that's at stake for us. When our despair completely covers over the candle of hope, we begin to believe that God isn't good anymore. Maybe he's good to others, but he's not good to me. But the more poignant comment made from Charles Spurgeon in the middle of dealing with this fallout was this phrase he said, when you can't trace his hand, you can always trust his heart. When you can't trace his hand, you can always trust his heart, meaning that when you don't understand what he's doing, where he's going, what he, why, he, why he allowed or why he had caused the thing, here's the thing we can trust. You can trust his heart for you. It's, it's what the psalmist David was trying to say in Psalm 23, and he says it so beautifully and poetically that almost at every funeral it gets read. Psalm 23, do you know these words? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The valley of the shadow of death. When those shifting shadows overtake the sun and the temperature drops, sometimes the way is hard to see. David writes, You're still there. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. If you're struggling today, if a friend close to you is struggling and there's spillover pain in your life, one of the reasons why at the end of the service we want to pray with you is just to remind you, to have a couple of people remind you and pray to the God who is already there and who is already listening and ask him to make his presence and his peace more of a reality in your life at this time. This is what David writes. It's what Paul was trying to get to. When you come to God, here's what God says. You have full permission to mourn. I'm gonna be with you even through the morning. So grief is okay. It's not faithful to not grieve. It's normal. Jesus wept. David mourned for days over the loss of his son. All the major characters, the apostle Paul, the pastors, wrestling with what does it mean now that those that we love are passing away? Do you remember when the Bible says in in, in the book of, of Ecclesiastes, when it says there's a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance? Psalm 119, 28, David, I wept with grief. Maybe you've heard this. I want to tell you some of the form that grief can take. Grief for people of faith. So here's some stages of of grief written back in the late 1960s. A lot of times when we're faced with this, there's just the denial. We don't want to face the facts. We don't want to let the words that the doctor spoke like speak loudly. And so we're always looking for the angle. And so that's just a normal part of the grief. We just don't even want to face it. And after that, there's often anger. The reality begins to set in and then there are these waves of emotion where we don't know what else to do. We're just mad, we don't like it. And then a lot of times people go into bargaining. So any kind of relief from temporary pain, 
Anything that'll make it go away. And so a lot of times you'll see addiction issues will like either take full form or they'll come back at a time of, of, of loss, time of grief. And a lot of times there's depression. Depression, that feeling that you're alone, the anger that you are projecting out now gets projected in. And sometimes after a funeral of a loved one and all the family being there and all the arrangements that needed to be made and all the activity. And now a week later, everybody's gone and you really are aware of just how much your life is going to be different. And then Elizabeth Kubler writes, uh, Ross writes that the, the final stage of this grief process is there's this acceptance that you come to acknowledge reality and somehow you begin to live with it. Now, these are not the stages of grief for people who don't have faith. These are the stages of grief, generally observed. And people of faith are allowed, it's not faithless, to deal with these things. But we don't sorrow like those who have no hope. We get to walk through this process of loss with a God who's very present, who cares. And while things may have caught us by surprise, he's never been surprised. He never turns the father never turns to Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the council of the Trinity and says, ooh, I didn't anticipate that. Did you guys? Hmm. Never happens. He, he's not surprised. And in fact, the pain that you feel, the pain that you feel is the normal and right thing because death was never meant to be our way. Death is an imposition on the reality that we were created for. And there's no faithfulness in not feeling these things or dealing with these things. Real quick, if you're at all struggling today, I want to take you to a book that has ministered to me powerfully. It's a book, Where is God When It Hurts by Philip Yancey. In fact, I bought a handful of copies this week, had them shipped here quickly. And if, if you're like in the middle of this, please don't everybody get it. I only bought 25 copies. Second service has got to come. But if you're in the middle of this, you can walk right out to this table and I bought you a copy of this book. I want you to understand that God is present. I can't promise you that anything is gonna change, but I can promise you that God will and is present with you in the middle of it. And I have discovered that makes a massive difference. That the truth that Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted. That comes quicker and clearer when I hold on to the fact that God is present and God is good. God's not surprised and he'll be with me through it. Here's the third thing I think we can do real quickly. I think we can admit that we need support from other people. So in Exodus chapter 17, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, Moses is about to fight a battle and God says, as long as you hold your arms up, you win. You put your arms down, you lose. I don't know why God said that. He just did. I think it's for our benefit, not so much for Moses's. Moses holding his arms up. Woo, we're winning. I'm tired. We're losing. Oh, we're winning. Oh, I'm tired. Oh, yeah. So he can't do it. He just can't do it by himself anymore. So Aaron and her come alongside Moses. Here's the passage says us. Moses' arms finally became too tired to hold them up. So Aaron and her found a stone for him to sit on and they stood on each side of him holding up his hands until sunset. God brings you spiritual family. Sometimes they're related to you. Sometimes they're not. Let's be honest. Some of our families are so dysfunctional that at times like this, at times of major loss and pain, they're not a support. Got it. But we have a spiritual family. That's why I want to, if, if, you, if you want, you don't have to do it for me. It doesn't, I don't get brownie points with God, but if you want your spiritual family to pray with you, we're going to do that today. 
The church becomes your spiritual family in difficult times. And it can help get you through. I'm going to be honest, like your earthly family, we're imperfect. It's not going to be perfect for you. We're not going to be able to take all the pain away. The best we'll be able to do largely is be there with you. And honestly, for some of us today, maybe that aren't going through this, you need to sure up that spiritual family thing. So I'm just going to throw out like very quickly without commenting a handful of things you can do to connect more deeply with your church family here. So it's going to sound self-serving, but I promise you, I'm not offering this for any benefit to Four Corners but so that you can have a more real and tangible connection with your church family. You can join a 4C small group. You can help out in 4C kids. You can become a greeter, increase your giving, do some maintenance and cleaning, serve at one of our community meals that we're doing once a month. You can pray for your pastors. You can invite someone to do a small group with you. You can take a church friend to lunch and talk. I, I I wrote those in 30 seconds. There's a thousand things you can do to connect with your church family. And I want you to experience what it is to be a part of the family of God in a tangible way. Because there are gonna be challenges you face and your church family can help you through them. Galatians 6.2, Paul writes these words about this. Share each other's troubles and problems. And in this way, you obey the law of Christ. We bear one another's burdens. The fourth thing I'd offer real quick is that we can use our opportunity in the middle of this difficult stuff to share Jesus. One of the reasons why I don't mind doing funerals as often as I need to and when the pain is very real is that I get a chance to talk about the only hope any of us ever really had anyway. And his name is Jesus. And people will let you talk to them about Jesus no matter what their lives were like up to that point of that funeral that they're having to go through. They'll let pastors pray when they would never let them pray. And I get to remind people just how awesome Jesus is. I get to remind them of Paul's words in Philippians 1.21 when he said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And I get to talk about how life lived with Christ, though we experience all the pains and it's normal to feel pain, it makes a tangible difference because at the end of the day, our hope isn't only here. And sometimes I get to explain to them that the biggest secret of Christianity is this, that Christianity is not only the best way to live, but it's the best way to die. Because we get life with Christ here and we get all that other stuff that he promised as well. And sometimes I have to do it choking back tears because the pain is there. Take it from a guy that's walked through this with dozens and dozens of people. There is a fundamental difference when active faith in Christ is present at a funeral than when it's not. There's, the sorrow looks the same. The tears can be as dramatic and loud, but there is this candle of hope burning. So for the followers of Jesus, death is certain, but death is not final. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, "'Oh, death, where is your victory?' Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death and the law gives sin its power. How we thank God who gives us the victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Paul writes these words while he's a prisoner facing execution at the end of a Roman sword. Death, where is your sting? Oh, it's there. But it ultimately gives way to the victory that we have in Christ. And so, what can we do? Go to God. 
admit you need help. Connect with your church family. And then those of us that are, are around, we can find ways to interject Christ into the middle of these dark times. And I'm telling you, though it's difficult, in fact, it's even difficult to talk about it here, it makes a fundamental difference. I have seen people who thought their lives were over get up and find new purpose and meaning with Christ. They had to go through the process. Some Christians came along them and tried to hurry it. But at the end of the day, they found a depth of relationship with Christ and usually a depth of relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And it made a tangible, real difference in their lives. I just want to give you permission today, that no matter what you're facing, to acknowledge where you are emotionally and call out to God because he's there. And I want to give you permission to feel it, walk through it, don't have to be hurried in it, and call out to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And while we can't be there with perfection like God, we will do our best to pray for you, support you. One or two of us can probably get to know you, share a meal with you. I can't do it for all seven, 800 people that call this church home. I can do it for a handful, and a handful can do it for a handful more, and together we can become the body of Christ. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take a handful of next steps, and I'm gonna spend a little time in prayer and when I start praying, there's a couple of people in this room that are gonna get up and they're gonna go stand against that back wall. And then Will and the band are gonna come up here and play a song and we're gonna sing about, just, we're gonna focus our minds on God. And while we're doing that, if you wanna receive prayer for anything, you can go. We won't take a long time, not long drawn out thing. Everybody's gonna be looking here. We're gonna be looking at you. You can get up and go back there and just receive prayer. So right now, would you take out your connect card and let's take a few steps together as a congregation. I want to give you a chance today to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So next step A for us, every week is the same. Today, I'm making Jesus my Lord and Savior. It's about beginning a relationship with Christ. And the Bible says you do it this way. You simply acknowledge what God has already said about you. God, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I've made mistakes. I've blown it. I've blundered. I have failed. And I accept your forgiveness for all of that. And I want you to lead my life. So if you want to do that, I ask you to check this next step A. And when the offering bucket comes by at the end of our service, you put it in. And we'll communicate with you. You're not joining our church. You're not committing to give money. You're not signing up for anything. It's going to send you an email about what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus. In a minute, I'm going to pray. And you can use my words. You can use your own. I'm going to lead you to saying to God, God, I'm a sinner. Would you save me? Now, how about next step B? Today, I'm choosing to be baptized. We have one happening second service. A handful more in the queue over the last few weeks. God, God's been saving people and they've been turning from spiritual death to life. If you want to get baptized or have your questions answered, check the box, put it in the offering bucket. Here's next step C. I told you about it already. I want to join a small group. Write the number there and you're in. One step process. For all of us, no matter whether or not you're in the middle of dealing with death, here's a memory verse in next step D I'd like for you to consider memorizing. James chapter 4, 8 draw close to God and God will draw close to you. Draw close to God and God will draw close to you. You check that, put it in the offering bucket. I'll send you an email reminder or next step E. Four Corners Church, we have a powerful ability to minister to people in need. So here's the, here's the step for us. Would you think about reaching out to somebody who's hurting this week and pray for them, but not just pray for them. On occasion, would you stretch yourself and maybe pray with them? Here's what it looks like. Hey, I'm really sorry you're going that. Can I pray for you right now? And, and I'm gonna give you like a, like a 30 second prayer. God, 
I don't know all that I need to say right now, but I'm going to ask you to make your presence known to her with what she's going through. Amen. And all you're doing when you do that is you're declaring that you care, you'll make time, and you're declaring that the God who is present can be known. It's a powerful thing to do. So would you at all be willing to pray for, but also with a few people and look for an opportunity to do that this week? Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to bow your head and lead us in prayer. Folks, if you're gonna help me pray, those folks that I've already talked to, go ahead and make your way in the back. And then when we start singing and everybody stands, if you want prayer, they'll be right in the back of the room. All right, let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, God, I I, want to thank you for a church that will allow me to talk to a handful of us about what we're going through. God, because the truth is, is if we're not there now, we're going to be, we're going to be there. And Lord, more than anything else, I'm praying that the truth of your presence would be made known to us because your presence, that will trump my words today. Your presence will trump the emotions today. Your presence can bring peace when my arguments fail. Your presence can change lives. Now, Lord, I pray for this congregation that we would become agents of ministry to this hurting community in our church and around us. That the presence of Christ that's active in us would shine through us, bringing hope to people who are struggling in darkness. Lord, I pray for those right now that are declaring, Jesus, be my savior. I'm a sinner, save me. God, I want you to lead my life. God, I pray for those families right now that are struggling, facing a serious illness, facing death, or for some who's, the death may have happened years ago, but the pain is still real. God, I pray that the Prince of Peace would be present. I pray that the one who calms the storms would speak peace into their life right now. And I pray all this in the powerful and holy name of Jesus, the strong son of God. Amen. Amen.